and welcome to Pints and Politics. This will be episode number 106. We explore all things political with focus on life here in Peterborough, Ontario, and Canada. Since March of 2020, we've been gathering together for these discussions online. This discussion to which you're about to listen was recorded last Saturday, June 5th, 2021. Joining me for this online discussion are several members of our regular politics panel. First up, we have property manager and businesswoman Jenny Lancio. Then we have Curve Lake First Nations Councillor and Ontario NDP Indigenous Peoples Committee Chair, Sean Conway. We have Peterborough This Week journalist and former mayor of Peterborough, Sylvia Sutherland. So last week, the grim news about the discovery of a mass grave at the Kamloops Indian Residential School broke across our screens. Now, Trent Radio Signal reaches three First Nations in our area, so... uh, We don't want to make an incredibly painful situation worse for our listeners. And I don't know quite how we'll do that, other than being uh, highly respectful of what we're dealing with here. For me, this is a deeply painful news story. For Indigenous families, this hits hits far closer to the bone. Uh, For them, this is much more than, quote, unquote, uh, a news story. And I don't want to make this situation more painful for anyone. Non-Indigenous Canadians have known for years about the abuse that occurred at Indian residential schools across Canada. The 2017 film uh, Indian Horse was shot here in Peterborough, using the former convent at the Mount as a stand-in for a residential school. The film, based on the 2012 novel by, of the same name by Richard Wagamse, traces the life of a gifted Indigenous hockey player from his early childhood to late adulthood. As a child, this hockey player attended a residential school. The film explores the abuses he suffered at the hands of school staff and the impact of this abuse on his career. What else is local? Well, there's a large auditorium uh, at Trent University here in Peterborough that's named after Chani Wenjak, an Ashinaabi boy who at the age of 12 ran away from a residential school in Kenora and died of starvation and exposure while try to walk, or trying to walk back home to his family in a Goki post 600 kilometers away in the late fall of 1966. Uh, the tragically, uh, tragically hip singer Gord Downey wrote a, an album based on Winjack's escape. The album, dubbed Secret Path, was released in 2016 along with a graphic novel of Winjack's story by novelist Jeff Lemire, and it also aired... The novel aired as a uh, visual presentation on uh, CBC TV. So the the story of the residential schools has been told, but not everyone has listened. When the news from Kamloops broke last weekend, I had to remind myself that I was not listening to a report of another atrocity committed in the Congo or in Afghanistan or in Syria. The perpetrators are not foreign terrorists living far away. No, this happened in Canada. Well within my lifetime, the perpetrators were Canadians, settlers of European heritage like my grandparents, my parents, like me. This is simply not another news story I can hear and file away and ignore. The former senator and chair of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, the Honorable Murray Sinclair, has said that he fully expects more graves to be discovered. The official estimate published by the TRC 
references a possible three to 4,000 additional victims. Sinclair has said personally that he fears the number could possibly wind up being in the range of 15 to 25,000 once all the graves are discovered across Canada. So, what are the possible impacts of this news from Kamloops? Yeah, thanks for highlighting this, Bill. Sean Conway here. I think one of the things that we need to reflect on is we're 14 years from the national apology from Prime Minister Harper, and we're seven years from the release of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission calls to action, uh, of which just a handful have uh, begun work on. Uh, and within the Truth and Reconciliation Commission calls to action, there's a specific section related to the uh, finding mass graves in former residential school sites. Mm-hmm. And there's a price tag associated with that. It's a rather modest price tag of about $1.5 million, which is really in this age of uh, debts and deficits uh, is a drop in the bucket. So we have approximately 88 calls to action from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission that have not yet been worked upon, uh, notably uh, which is working with communities to do the GPR, ground penetrating radar, uh, that has been used to identify these sites of mass graves and burials uh, in the grounds of residential schools across Canada. So I think really committing ourselves as communities, as municipalities, as provinces, as the federal government, uh, there's a place for all levels of government and, and for community members and citizens of this country to play in, in writing these sorts of wrongs and it, it's been an extremely difficult time for indigenous communities well, this last week in in our community we lit a sacred fire for four days in in honor of those 215 children uh and as well as in hiawatha they did the same in communities across canada and north america and, and most interestingly i was participating in a panel with uh, some of our international partners with uh, the New Zealand Labour Party as well as Australia Labour Party uh, just just last week. And, and news of this discovery reached across the globe and was a big point of discussion in, in how Indigenous communities factor into the colonial and settler states. And I think really recommitting ourselves to those calls to action is going to be an important uh, step moving forward, and as well as letting communities lead the way. You know, we have the blueprint to get towards the reckoning that is needed in this country, and and really it's just the first step. The first step is is completing the rest of these call to action. I think it's important that we have these discussions now because, like I was saying, we've we've known about this for a very long time. You know, residential schools were operating in Canada well into my childhood. The last residential school in Canada closed in 1996. But we also have other other systems of, of that sort of, you know, very, very measured approach of, of oppression and assimilation with the Indian Day Schools program, which existed prior to residential schools as well as after residential schools and a lot of communities. We also have the ongoing issues with um, Indigenous child welfare, with the foster care system. These are all things that are going to need to be 
addressed by government moving forward if we're really going to have any sort of healing in this country. And I think it's important that this story is sort of blown up the way that it has. And there has been this this outcry from, you know, our friends, our, our neighbors, our communities. But it's really important that we recommit and focus on the work that needs to be done because it's all well and good to have as many vigils or marches and everything as you want. But really the painful work starts in those recommendations from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission calls to action. Me, uh, Sean, that... Um, Sylvia, go ahead. Yeah, Sylvia, sorry. Uh, that the the money that had been set aside, how many million to deal, is still there. You know, it's what, two, three years ago? <laughs> yep. And meanwhile, it's not been spent, which yep. to me is reflective of the fact that the interest or the... Uh, you know, in that report and in dealing with that report sort of flagged recently, it's been uh, obviously reignited. And this is not a funny, you know, we have the 24-hour news cycle, we have the 24-hour news story, we have the 48-hour and then move on to something else. That We can't allow that, this to happen in this in this case. And also, I think we really do have to be careful how we, it was not a mass grave out there. There were individual burials. In fact, that was corrected. There were, indivi- there were individual burials, but they weren't identified. Right. And, and, and the fact that the, uh, you know, that the church, the Catholic church, the Catholic church is not the only church involved in this, obviously. No. The Anglicans, Anglicans and also the Presbyterians. And the Presbyterians and the Methodists. Uh, going back far enough. But th- the other groups have at least apologized. And it would be very nice, I'm sure, whether the Pope, I know my Roman Catholic indigenous grandmother, I was adopted, my grandmother, the person I loved best of my, in my childhood, who kept her faith all her life in a nest of Presbyterians in the household, <laughs> would certainly appreciate, I'm sure, hearing from the Pope, even right. if he is still in the Vatican and not in Canada. Right. I just find this absolutely so inexplicable. But uh, we cannot, this cannot be allowed to become a 24-hour news story, or as it did for my mind. You read it years ago. You read about the schools. You knew about the schools. Then you yep. moved on to something else. Yeah. Uh, as I said before, we went on air. I am, for the first time in more than 80 years, ashamed of my country that we have not addressed yes. this. A, that we allowed it to happen. Right. And B, that we have done not a great deal or anything about it in the meantime. Anyway, that's my statement for the day. Parenthetically, I'm just wondering, and I've had a few conversations with people about Canada Day. Now, as a Quebecer, as a Montrealer, July 1st was always sort of a non-event. It wasn't a big deal growing up. But this year, the usual hoopla just doesn't seem right. I mean, concerts, fireworks, uh, what do people think? Sean, what do you think? I always have a bit of a contentious relationship with Canada Day, (laughs) you know, regardless of of what it is. I think think really uh, Canada should be pivoting to June the 21st and the National Day for Indigenous Peoples. And, uh, And again, you know, my clarion call will be that that Canada recommit itself to implementing all the recommendations of the TRC, uh, and as well as the report of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. There's tons mm-hmm. of work yep. that this country has to oh. do, and yep. and it's about time they started doing it. Just just this Monday coming up, there's a there's a uh, a vote coming up. I just got word of this to 
stop fighting residential school survivors and Indigenous children in court. That vote is happening yep. in the federal government on Monday, an NDP motion. Um, and speaking with a lot of my comrades and brothers in arms across the across the country, this is a real moment for Canada to recommit to do that work and to to just get it to act together. Jen. I, I feel like Canada in this situation has had a really bad habit of causing a lot of activity and it's a lot of feel-good optics and then not a lot of actual doing anything after the fact. So, you know, you would Canada Day and people post things on social media and people have marches and protests like Sean said. And all of that is lovely, but really, in the end, it doesn't do anything. Like, Uh you know, not that it has to do with residential schools, but even, Sean, in your community, you're dealing with the loss of um, Selena Taylor and trying to get that recognized as the the murder that it was. And we can't even get that that type of thing organized locally and give that family the closure that they deserve. So I'm worried how Canada is even going to begin to navigate something on this scale because they've done such a crap job of it mm. thus far. You know, writing, ahead, things uh... on, writing things on paper as recommendations, well, yeah, it's as good as the paper that it's written on. Nothing, absolutely nothing has been done with any of it. And there doesn't really seem to be any accountability for that. Mm. Like it's just all this feel-good stuff. Oh, yeah, we made 88 recommendations. Okay. So now what? I think maybe now what, if there's anything remotely positive coming out of this, it may be the fact that now it will, that they can no longer ignore the recommendations. They can no right. longer ignore the Because for the first time, it seems to me, the country is galvanized. The people yes. are galvanized. And yes. they're horrified. Yeah. And, and we are covered, I think, many people with great shame that this happened in this country in our lifetimes. In our lifetimes, oh, and and oh, we've done, you know, we have we read about it and then we move on, and that's what I was saying earlier. We cannot move on this time. Yes. I think it has to be pushed out there, and it and it. As I say, it's a, if there's anything remotely positive out of that discovery in Kamloops, it is that may have galvanized the nation to finally do something that should have been done years and years and years ago. Sure. To your point about the ongoing court actions by the federal government to 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 fight off to to not cooperate with the victims of residential schools and murdered, uh, missing and murdered uh, women. Uh, I heard an interview with uh, Matt Galloway on the current uh, with Carolyn Bennett, and he asked her that question in a very direct way, like, "Why are you still fighting these people in court?" And she gave this baffle gab answer of wanting to get the conditions right for healing. I mean, it was nauseous. It was just, ah, anyway. Uh, Carolyn Bennett, I know Carolyn. She's a good person. Uh, it was baffle gab. Okay. I heard, I heard that interview. And, uh, but I think, you know, I, I know her. She's a good, humane person walking a very difficult rope. She's one person in the government. She should have. One would have professed, uh, hoped to have given a more direct answer. But yes. um, I, I don't question Carolyn's humanity in just, some of the government's un- actions. It's are just inactive. unfortunate that it's unfortunate that up until now the optics of it are that up until now it has been people's stories, not necessarily anything particularly tangible. And now, how do you ignore 215 bodies? Like, I think it's a real shame that it had to get to this point before 
the stories of these people that survived these school, schools carried any weight. I think That's among other I things, it. I think you find the other bodies. I think we have to know the totality of this. So if you they find the other bodies. I would be horrified to think how many haven't been found. Like, there I mean, that's just a well, drop well, in the bucket. Well, if you look at all the residential schools across this country, and, and re- yeah, and uh, there's no doubt at all, and I think Senator Sinclair, former Senator Sinclair has said this, that you go and find the other bodies. You do that now. For what it's worth, it's still posted on the CBC site, this about 10-minute interview with former Senator Sinclair, where he's the ex- chair of the trc the commission Uh, and so he's had on if anyone has access to survivors and he's a lawyer he's a former judge he's a highly he's a highly admirable impeccable credentials and he was my choice for governor general he's i mean his testimony is for for everyone well worth listening to because there's no ducking it you know this is not oh well another news story put you know turn the page well that, that's the danger it becomes just another news story and i can't we can't yep. let that happen sean what were you hearing from new zealand what what's their sense of this because they of course have a similar dynamic over it well i think you know with with i was on a, a call with indigenous mps and territorial officials uh in australia and uh and elsewhere and and just horrific horrific stories you know this is the this is uh that's what it is you know and i think people very plainly see it for what it is and you know it's a very difficult time for a lot of people oh right it's a very difficult it's a very difficult time hopefully it's a very difficult time for it's more difficult for some than others but hopefully it's a difficult time for all of us it should be yeah and I think um, something I just want to reflect on something Sylvia said and, 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 and uh, something that I've seen in watching uh, different people react to this. You know, it's a very universal concern and condemnation of, of the discovery. And as well, I'm, I'm seeing that culture shift that, you know, these issues can't be ignored anymore. Yeah. These are majoritarian issues. And um, even the polling that we've seen. Uh, over the last few months, you know, quote unquote, reconciliation with Indigenous people is inching higher and higher and higher for concerns that, that Canadians have, whether it be the economy, whether it be child care, health care and, and the environment, but also doing right by Indigenous people is steadily climbing as well. So I think this really cements it that any sort of serious political actor in this country is going to have to do something about it. And again, it goes right back to the recommendations of the TRC, those were designed by communities and by Indigenous people of what the federal government can do, and as well as what uh, Senator Sinclair said, go and find the bodies. That's number one. On political implications, how is this going to shake? Are, are the various political parties going to use this as a cudgel with which to beat each other, or is there going to be unanimity? I haven't been paying attention to what uh, certainly uh, many of the political leaders have been saying, but do we sense that this cuts across partisan lines? Well, I I wish I could think it did, oh. but I think I think certainly both the conservative and the liberal parties is it would be very uh, well, difficult for them. They'll use it, but they're both both hold responsibility for right. not dealing with this issue, whether you're a liberal or conservative. Right. I excuse the NDP from that, but yeah. uh, you know, yeah. but that, that that won't stop them from beating each other over the head about it. 
Right. I, I'm I think, getting cynical as I get older, I'm afraid. I think <laughs> um, there there has been a bit of a nonpartisan push to this, and, and some of the messaging from, from the Liberal Party, the Conservative Party, and, and absolutely the NDP has been of, you know, shock, horror, and, and we need to have action. Earlier I mentioned there's been a wide commitment from the Ontario NDP uh, to do GPR in, in former residential school sites here in Ontario should they form government in 2022. We've seen the upcoming motion, private member's motion, coming on Monday from the federal NDP to cease these legal actions towards St. Anne's survivors and uh, and also the appeal and compensation strategy through the Jordan's Principle and uh, First Nations Caring Society uh, class action. Uh, but there have been some interesting developments, I think, from, from the Liberals and Conservatives that they are, they are definitely, they're definitely aware of the issue. Um, <laughs> right. And, wow, uh, and I think that, that is, that is something, right? You know, both of these yeah. governments were in power. Again, we're talking 14 years ago, seven years ago with the national apology and the calls to action. Both, both governments wear this. But I think it's an opportunity for a nonpartisan approach to implementing these things and that it be right. not a partisan issue. Uh, and again, I think the polling is, is just that way that, that federal parties have to, have to do what they're going to do. So we'll see where things land on Monday because generally uh, the, the government won't support uh, an opposition PMB, but if, should they vote against it, I'm sure they'll come up with something themselves. We'll see. And, uh, and I think it's really just wait till Monday to see what happens. And if there's anything that, that, that can come out, uh, you know, there was currently a, a group of lawyers, I think just about this broke about maybe an hour or two hours ago, a group of lawyers here in Canada has applied to send Canada to the international, uh, criminal court. And, right. And that's a, uh, that's something that has been, talked about quite a bit. And I think communities are very uncomfortable with the RCMP's involvement in any of these investigations. So I think, you know, dragging Canada to Hague is probably not a bad idea here. But I I do feel that there's a there's a nonpartisan push to for people to do right by this. And I think the citizens of Canada are they want this. So whoever's gonna get it done It's probably not going to be done before the next election, which maybe No, it'll be a dangled carrot. Yes, yeah, right. Well, an end to smugness. All right, well, how are we on this? Other things to put out that need to be said? I'm um, even prepared I'm even prepared to see Ryerson renamed. Right. Being a Ryerson graduate. Sean, right. I'm just wondering, Sean, from your perspective, what would be an appropriate – University X is not going to cut it, which is, you know, <laughs> what they're labeling it right now. But um, what do you think – sort of name do you think should that is have any thoughts on that i've been struggling with what would i rename it i mean i'm proud to be i owe a lot to ryerson one way or the other i graduated from there i married a guy who taught me there i was on the board of governors there and egerton ryerson did establish in ontario a, a wonderful system of public education okay all that aside let's get rid of it. what would you think would be an appropriate approach well, to i think it? um you know, there are protocols that, that exist with a lot of post-secondary institutions in, in concert with First Nations and Indigenous Métis uh, communities. And I think you, you go back to that relationship building. And there are lots of, of relationships built with post-secondary institutions and Indigenous communities uh, 
built up over the years, you know, memorandums of understanding and, and, and things of the like. And I think really you've got to go back to the communities uh, and, and, and not just Indigenous communities, with the community on, on a whole and, and find an appropriate title or name for the place. You know, I'm, I, I wouldn't know what to name it. I, I don't have a connection <laughs> to it. Uh, so well, it was an unfair question. I apologize. Well, you know, I, and I think, I think you just defer to the processes, right? Like that's, that's the, that's the way to do it. Although, um, Sean, your, your comment triggers, uh, something for me in that, uh, was it someone connected with, uh, Miriam Monsef's campaign last time around says, told me, that in going across the country and speaking to groups, at one point, they stopped doing land acknowledgements. And instead, they asked the simple question, whose land are we on? Like, who the, what's the name of the nation? And, of course, there was a great fumbling with, with cell phones, people looking up at you, because non-Indigenous people don't know that, you know, now. Just that simple awareness, and to, uh, to speaking to your point, uh, Sylvia, as, as to names of Ryerson, well, name it for the local nation on which it's, well, who is that? <laughs> I don't I know, know who the local nation York? is. I, uh, I, I only take Toronto back as far as York. That's the limitation of my, of my, uh, right, but my before education you, no, on no, that no. point. I do know that Ryerson has reached out uh, to the Ryerson community, including the alumnus, alumni, uh, you know, on the on the issue. Uh, not the name specifically, but on the issue as to whether to rename it or not, then I, it will, I believe, be renamed. But anyway, I just wanted to throw that out there. It's all self-interest. All right. Another question I'm curious about, how does Doug Ford get away with closing down the provincial legislature here in Ontario and uh, taking a three-month summer vacation? I mean, I hear there's uh, there's something of a pandemic going on. Uh, governments around the world are going into debt, uh, high unemployment, uh, lots of uh, stuff that needs some leadership. I mean, how does that work? What's your reaction to that? To the optics of it, uh, then to, uh, you know, recess down, go <laughs> off to their summer cottages where they probably shouldn't be anyway. But anyway, no, I, I, I don't think it's a very, but I don't think it's going to matter much in the total scheme of things in the end anyway. Okay. Now, how does okay. optimistic Sean feel? Well, you know, yeah. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of, of politicians being at Queen's Park because I think that there's a necessary role of opposition um and yeah. and i think that that's that's an important thing and i think that as we're going through a transition into our reopening plan if you want to call it that and also through the vaccination rate there needs to be that public accountability of government by opposition parties whether it be ndp liberal green whoever new blue party um <laughs> it could be any of them i think i think that um the citizens of ontario have an opportunity to question their leadership and and really there's not a lot of opportunity for that to happen outside of the legislature with the ford government there's a very adversarial relationship with the media and with the press and an extremely adversarial uh, relationship with the opposition. But really that 
that I think would be my caution against the Ford government taking a three month recess is just because I believe in the role of opposition and that the government should be answering questions. Well, you feel as strongly, Sean, if the NDP wins the next election. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Well, I, you know, I, just, like I, just I say I, no to that. Yeah. I'm a parliamentarian. I believe in I believe in <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and I think it is really, really important. And people like value for dollar, right? And uh if if they you know, we're we're paying politicians a lot, we should at least see them yelling at yeah. each other. Well I remember well I remember Walter Pittman, dear man that he was saying years ago I was talking to Walter Walter was a member at that point for Peterborough in the legislative assembly in Queen's Park. He said, you know, with Peterborough, he said, they want you to be at Queen's Park all the time, but they want you at every event we have here <laughs> at the same time. It's, right. it's not a, and a, it's a tough role, but, but sure, you're right sure. about opposition. Oh, and Jenny. Like, quite yeah. honestly, though, I mean, Queen's Park and going to their cottage, it just, yeah, it makes me shake my head. Local politicians have been no better through all of this. Like, they've all been vaporized as well. So. They're meeting. I, yeah, that's it, though. Like. <laughs> Would you be better off if they weren't? Sylvia, like they're fighting over stupid things, they're wasting time talking about stupid things, and then they're vaporizing. Like I cannot tell you the number of people locally that have tried to get a hold of their councillor, of the mayor, and it's radio silence. Like there's nothing. So I think, I think and I've, just... I've, I've, I made a comment in passing recently in a call that I think one of the major problems this city hall is facing at the moment is a problem of communication. With each other, with yeah. the public, and between staff and, and council. I think, hello, who is that? Hi. We've got a special guest here, uh, my uh, outdoor correspondent, Ruby Conway. <laughs> Ruby Conway. Junior, Conway. junior reporter and correspondent. Well, that's great. <laughs> hello, Ruby. <laughs> Beware of a future in the media, though, Ruby. We must yes, talk. yes, yes. <laughs> Beware of the promises hey, of big bucks. They're not there. Oh, dear. <laughs> that's, that's great. Now, yeah. not not to draw us into as prickly since young ears are with us, uh, a conversation <laughs> that would draw out anger, uh, and I don't want to get into polls, but I'll just reference them for the following. The federal liberal, liberals and their quest for a majority, and we've already riffed about uh, the likelihood of elections. The CBC poll tracker, as of early this afternoon, have the liberals at the 5.4% lead of the conservatives. And according to Eric Grenier, they're on the cusp, not, not there, but on the cusp of the majority. The NDP may pick up a few more seats. Now, my question is, a few months ago, this panel gave the Liberals a mark of, if I averaged it out, a, a mark of a B for their management of the pandemic up till that point. Are we still going with this B? Yeah. Like, as in it could be better, or? Well, ABCDF, you know, ABCDF. They're still a B? Are they a C? Are they F? Are they A? I mean... See, the problem is, Bill, that we're marking based on just one section. I think um, there's a lot of things where there's got a uh, much lower score, you know, particularly with the, the pandemic. Again, I'm going to say it, it, I would downgrade to a C, and I, I just really have not seen the, the leadership from the federal government that I think really needs to be there. Yes. Yes. Well, you... Sean, you, you lead to a question I've got further down my list, but it fits in right here. What policy initiative, initiatives might the Liberals release 
to to sweeten the pie uh, on offer for uh, potential voters. Uh, I, I'm not suggesting policies are, are fluffy. I mean, there might also be good policies, but what what else do they put in the window? There are two things that the Liberals are going to run on in the next election, and I, I from one, believe it's going to probably be October 25th of this year, but I think oh, they're going to run on a pharmacare program, right. and I believe they're going to run on a child care program. And those are going to be the two two big pieces of the Liberal platform. They're just making to, note. Yes. You're trying to do both? They, they might do both or one of the other? That, that will be what they run on in the election. Which one has the greatest chance of actually, to Jenny's point, uh, transferring into reality? Of actually getting From Mark done. Carney or Christian Freeland or Justin Trudeau, I don't think either, either one of them. Well, I, I'd rather go with Freeland, actually. No? Okay. Well, I, a lot of, that's what they will run on. Uh, but you wonder, I mean, and if they're lucky or not, that may be what the country votes on. But what they run on may necessarily not necessarily be what the public votes on. Maybe their conduct of pandemic or their reaction to uh, to the indigenous issues. They, you know, you can try to direct the country, the, the electorate, to your issues. But uh, depending on what we're, uh, you say October twenty. Well, you know, it would be next year if it isn't October twenty fifth. Next year we are going to have three elections. Talk about confusion. Anyway, like but, oh, cool. municipal, right? Mm-hmm. Provincial Ontario. and federal. So you wear, wear among other things, the people, public often doesn't know who does what anyway. And that's not a crisis right. of the public. They just go on with their lives. The, the, and, and also you wear out donors and you wear out election workers. It's going to be a, uh, unless somebody goes this year and it can't be the municipalities, you know, there's, a, it's going to be, it's going to be confusing enough with two of them going next year. Yeah, and I think Ontario, uh, Ontario, uh, and, and some of the other provinces. I believe we have Quebec next year as well. Uh, those races are are all the more important for political parties, and uh, then the federal uh, the federal government as well. So I think I think we're looking at this year. I think it's the fall. Uh, pensions come in uh, on the 18th, and yeah. uh, I believe the next week. And, and we we'll see it already. You know the. And you, and you really have. Uh, both in Ontario, at least in Ontario, as far as the Liberal Party is concerned, uh, an opposition, a party whose leader is not well known and doesn't have a chance to get out, you know, by next fall he might. Uh, federally, uh, you, with all due respect to both the opposition parties, you have fairly weak oppositions in the public mind. I mean, I, O'Toole hasn't, hasn't gained and as admirable as I, – I just feel that, that – the liberals right now are on a cusp here and are riding a wave, uh, partially because of the pandemic and the limitations on public gatherings, et cetera, and, and, and public politics. Does that make sense? I think it does. Now, <laughs> Sylvia, you, you said the feds go next year. Don't the feds go? We had election 19, so isn't well, the, the feds will fed- go. The, fed, the feds, you know, they're not going to go. Uh, I think the but- likelihood is they'll go next year if they don't go this year. But they don't have to go until they don't have to go. But no, they don't have to go. But also, if you go full term, it's a sign of weakness. But uh, they don't have to go. But uh, likelihood is, full, I think they will. Let, let, if you go full term, that's a sign of weakness. Yeah, it is. It means you haven't found the uh, you haven't found the spot to go uh, uh, oh, before full term. Yeah, that's common. Used to be at least oh. the common. Uh, okay. Knowledge. 
Okay. Yeah, you know, you know, the other thing too, uh, even if you had a majority government, a federal government can last five years. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, they don't often do that. So, right. you know, and Sylvia does make a very good point on that. And that is that, that it's a, uh, the four years, the magic for a majority, but for a minority government, two years, you're pushing it. Right, right. That's the, uh, that's how the many local, thing. like local federal candidates do we have right now? That have well, and we have, uh, uh, we have Miriam, I think, is the only one that's uh, that's nominated. The Join the Chica for the, the NDP. The Liberal Party has also declared an election emergency, which may lead to your uh, to the 25th date, which means they can set aside rules and regulations regarding the timing of nominations and the selection of nominees. And that they've made that declaration, which would indicate they are looking to an earlier election than next year. Uh, we have uh, we have a uh, a fight on for the provincial Liberal nomination. Yes. Um, and the uh, the conservatives, Michelle Ferrari. Who else? Is yes, looking? Michelle Ferrari. I think that, that's, that's no. Don there's Smith. One more. There's one more. Oh, right. right. Yes. Don there Smith. are three. There are three for the conservative nomination federally. And just last about three four weeks ago, the federal New Democratic Party nominated Joy Lachica as their federal. Lachica, that's yes. right. Yes. That's right. I saw that. Yeah. Now she's not local, Sean. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Oh, she yeah, lives she here. Yeah. yeah, and she's had a place uh, just north of Buckhorn for the last 20 years as well. Yep. Um, yeah, very interesting candidate and uh, a real real steal for the local dippers. Right, okay. <laughs> now, I have a question about O'Toole's Conservatives. Now, they're not pursuing a majority, but they're gunning for at least well, a victory. Well, I bet many... they are pursuing, well, pursuing a victory. <laughs> oh, they are pursuing a victory. Uh, majority maybe. At least, of course, the polling numbers, they don't seem to be in range. How many competing factions are alive and well under the Tory tent? In other words, uh, uh, how do we rate uh, O'Toole's uh, job security? You can't see that on radio. Uh, <laughs> I think uh, it might be iffy. Uh, but, you know, parties make a mistake by, you know, and the, the, the conservatives aren't the only ones that do it. Um, by tossing out the leader, if you lose an election, right? You know, if O'Toole loses, lose, and they toss him, well, that might not be the smartest thing to do. Anyway, I could make an analogy about hockey teams and coaches, but that would be too painful given our audience. <laughs> I won't stay away from that. I will. I will get. In order to win, O'Toole. In order to win, O'Toole ran to the right. In the, uh, right. He's trying to lead the party back to a center, center right. to the right of the other two parties, but still to a center. And that's a hard job. Right. But uh, but perhaps if the party is to regain power, a necessary one. Okay, I want to shift just to uh, one question about the municipal scene. And it's very specific. And, of course, it's one of these things that we could easily spend four hours on. Homelessness in Peterborough, what has the pandemic shown us and what can City Hall, or for that matter, anyone else in government, what can they do? Because I've noticed a huge uptick. Uh, Sean and I were talking about it before we came on air. We've got problems here in Peterborough. And what we've really noticed living in the downtown core is that the problem isn't isolated to the downtown core anymore. Right. It doesn't really seem to matter where you go in the city. We're having these issues and it's one thing, you know, when, when people were homeless and they were having the odd beer in the park or they were smoking a joint and, you know, it wasn't really an issue. But I'm downtown every day and we have, like, serious health issues, safety issues. Like, they're 
isn't a day that you're not running past somebody that's overdosed, getting treated for an overdose, use needles, use naloxone kits. There are people who are in such like horrible health that need attention. I, I don't even know where you begin to start to mm. help these people and clean up the downtown because it's it's two issues. Like it's not really fair for people who are trying to live and run businesses in the downtown to have to contend with vagrancy and drug issues and selling drugs and urination and all of that stuff in front of their business. And we also have a bit of a responsibility to help these individuals as well. But I don't even sure. know. It, it, it just seems like it has happened so quickly, like we've taken such a downhill slide so quickly that I don't even know where you begin to start yeah. to clean it up. Sure. Yeah, you know, I think there's always been issues in, in the community and every community has them. I think uh, if the pandemic has taught us anything that it's an opportunity for governments to be big, to go bold. I just want to run through some stats because we were talking about it earlier Yes. Um, a hospital bed costs approximately 10900 bucks a month. Jail is uh, uh, $4,500 a month. A shelter bed is almost $2,000 a month. But social housing, the cost is, uh, is really only about $199 a month. So what we need right. in Peterborough is a housing first approach. And yes. it's been done right. successfully in many jurisdictions in right. Medicine Hat, in Austin, Texas, and other places and jurisdictions where local governments and uh, the nonprofit sector can come together and provide Mm -hmm. housing. So housing doesn't just save lives. It also saves money. And that's that's the key to to speaking to all of these different stakeholders and, and to highlight just how necessary it is. You know, it's time the government got back into the business of housing. Uh, There's been some improvements with the federal uh, CMHT and, and other things, but but really you need a provincial dance partner, a municipal dance partner, and you need the NGOs involved to, to make it happen. You know, tiny homes are a good thing, RV parks, there's different ways to create intentional communities around right. housing, and then you can take care of everything else. And I think, uh, Sean took the words out of my mouth. I did a call <laughs> a while back, I think about a year ago, about housing first, uh, based right. on a Scandinavian model, Denmark, I think. And and what we mean by it, it's not it, it, because you're because you you may be an alcoholic or because you may have a drug problem is that you are not barred from housing. You the housing is first, and the and what they and successful programs they have built in support systems, say in a building where you have you may have offices for support systems downstairs and and people with a name on their door. One one of the one of the uh, one of the important things of what happened, and I think it was Denmark, was that each of these people who had a unit, their name was on the door. Right. And that may seem a small yes. thing, but it's important. No, it's but true. I think, you know, when I was researching that column, I called housing people in Peterborough, and they said, oh, yes, housing first is, is our approach. It's not, it's not there. It's not what's been happening. Sure. And uh, you, let's take it seriously. And you're right. You have Canadian models as well right. as uh, Scandinavian models. And, and, and they have worked. And yep. uh, the 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 homeless rate in this one country just dipped dramatically when they instituted housing first. But first of all, they have to understand what housing first involves, and they have to be serious about doing it, not just now, what, give it a name and, and forget about it. What leadership role can our municipal government take in all this? 
Well, maybe instead of, uh, and I'm not there, and, it's, and uh, Sean is certainly close <laughs> I to I was hoping you'd, you, you, you'd get into this. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, um, you know, first of all, maybe instead of uh, building the new Brock mission, you know, with with more sort of rooms, they should have built it with more ho- more actual homes rather right. than just just you know. Yeah. Uh, yep. No, I think I think it's the whole approach. It's like yep. you know, it has to. You can say one thing, and then forget you know forget what you mean by it and forget to do it. It's sort of like the whole the whole business of the environmental crisis, etc. When it's not built into the, uh, you know, we could look at the urban park as an example. We're not going there. But you know, it has to be. If you're going to do something, if you declare an emergency, it should be it should be present in the minds of everyone at City Hall, staff and council, that you know yep. this is the approach we said we are taking, and this is the approach approach we are going to take, and this is how we're going to use our funding to right. do that. Now it's total That's pie and pie in the sky for me to speculate, saying, wouldn't it be great if housing was no longer a commodity but a right? Yeah. Because in this household, you know, uh, both my kids are at home, early mid twenties. Their generation, never mind the university degrees, never mind the work experience, they have no hope. That's right. In somewhere very yeah. hot of ever, ever getting yeah. uh, buying, being home. As long as the market stays the way it is. And if I can just go, and, back, and, I, I think sure, having, go. having having criticized the approach to housing in Peterborough, again, I would like to reference the mount. Because yes. I think the Mount is yes. one of the most successful social exper- yep. uh, experiments I have seen in all the time I've lived in Peterborough. Right. And and they and and uh, maybe we uh, government municipal government could learn a bit about the approach from the Mount. Anyhow, sorry, I just wanted to give a plug to the Mount. Sure. Uh, could someone just give us because there are people who listen to this who don't know Peterborough don't know what the Mount is. What is the Mount? The Mount is the former uh, convent for the uh, Sisters of Saint Joseph. And it it is now uh, it 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 was sold to a group with the support, by the way, the quiet support uh, financially of the Sisters of Saint Joseph, oh, okay. uh, to uh, to a group who uh, are providing uh, a number of things. They're providing space for various organizations, rental space yep. to help pay their yep. bills, including the, the Presbyterian Church. In fact, Saint Paul's is there. Uh, mm-hmm. They have they have a kitchen. They they have units that are affordable. They have uh, they have RG uh, RGI units. They have uh, they have other units. They are. They, uh, I would urge people to go in on into their website to take a look at all that they are doing, and they do it as they can afford it. And the city and the province have, and I guess the feds have supported them with grants and that. But they are so sincere about what they're about. They're not in it for any profit at all. They're in it to house people and to help right. people. And it yeah. is a wonderful, wonderful experiment. Right, that's because, my plug for the mount. No, no, absolutely. Thank you. Because it, it sits on it sits on uh, it sits at the head of uh, McDonald Street, uh, off uh, Monaghan Road, and uh, you still see the cross on top. I remember when I used to drive home from City Hall. I'd come up uh, McDonald Street, and I'd look up at the cross, which was illuminated, and it always gave me a good feeling. Cross is still on top of that building, but it's not a religious organization anymore. The sisters right. are across the road, but it's not it's not a religious organization. Right. On that theme, um, there is a Dan Hennessy who was on the program a few weeks ago, referenced a community in Austin, Texas, of all places, where they have started a uh, 
it started with an old RV and they expanded into tiny home and tiny homes. And so now it's not only housing for people who are formerly homeless, but it's community. So mm-hmm. as uh, I think Sue Gonsier mm-hmm. mentioned at the program, it gives them not only homes, it gives them hope. Yeah, when people exactly. are starting small and, businesses. And, and, and I would argue that the Mount also is a community. And, right. Uh, and uh, and it gives people hope and they have uh, they have units there they they are uh, selling uh, they are trying to get into the land is it land lease don't it's another word for building Life where where in lease. fact you'll be pay, paying the full shot but that will okay. help that will help support yeah. the rest of it i sat on the board at the mount so oh okay what the mount does is actually a little bit different than the type of housing dan hennessy would like to see for instance who is doing the type of housing that Dan would like to see is, I think they're called One City now. They were, you know, Christian right, Harvey's right. group, One Roof, yep. and now they're One City. I yep. think they have, they own two houses at this point, the last I heard. Um, multi-room houses with on-site, I don't want to say supervision because it's people's homes. It's not supervision, but support some type of on-site support. leadership. Yeah. To help yep. people navigate reintegration into living yep. in a yep. home. So as far as the city of Peterborough goes, there are people in the city that are already doing it and doing it really well. Nobody needs to reinvent the wheel. The city just needs to kind of get over themselves and partner with an organization right. that is already doing it. They have the clientele. They have the expertise in place. They know what it's, what's required to do it. Unfortunately, they're doing it now on self-funding in a shoestring budget. Right. But, but where they have an opportunity to do it on, with funding, and there's is no reason why the city should partner, but there's no reason why their approach should not be similar. If, you know, if they can't find a partner, or if they're, you know, in a situation where they have to lead the charge. I, I mean, I, but I, I do think the housing first approach is the, is the, is the, is the, is the right approach. Okay. And, um... uh, Great. We're moving to last words here. Are there any uh, issues we think uh, collectively you think we should keep our eyes on that we're going to have to be talking about soon again um, that we maybe didn't cover or are still boiling, uh, boiling away in the back burner? All the environmental issues and what the province may well, be uh, selling, uh, selling out to the developers so far as wetlands and, uh, and right. the moraine, etc. There right. is an issue. Keep an eye on that. Yeah. All right. Anything oh, else yes. going once? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It'd be interesting to look at all that is happening, both provincially and I guess federally, and not so much municipally, because with what is going on behind the scenes, as we all concentrate on the on the virus. Yes. Yes. I am waiting to see what happens on what is our like the big day, June the fourteenth, and we're supposed to be able to start this phase one of reopening. Right. I'm waiting. I am patiently waiting and hoping for a community to to give Doug Ford the big F you and say we're going to do whatever we want. Okay. And I'm waiting. I'm waiting to see what the fallout of that is going to be. I am praying and hoping that it's Peterborough that does it. I think it's. I'm wasting my time, but I would love for a a small community that. Yeah is ready to reopen to say, yeah, we're just going to do our own thing. And thanks very much. Please. And thank you. All right. Hey, last, the- last words. I got one. Everybody. Sure, else got sure. one. I think everyone should be reading up on uh, Stephen Gilboa's bill, bill C10. 
regarding right. CRTC regulation of user-generated content and uh, sort of, you know, kind of styming uh, some free speech and uh, expression and net neutrality concerns. Uh, right. I think it's going to be a really interesting uh, uh, fight there. You've got the conservatives and the NDP sort of pushing back against this thing, and that I think that people should consider media consumption as part of their sort of essential services and things like that, but uh, really to adapt regulation to the 21st century and stop treating Canadian media like it's the 1960s. Wonderful. And I remember the 1960s. They yes, <laughs> Sylvia, I do too, but let's not go there. We'll have another five hours. All right. So, uh, Sylvia, uh, Sean, and Jenny, thanks so much for joining me on this panel discussion. You post on Twitter, at Bill Temp, and on our Facebook page, Pints and Politics Podcast is the name of the page. We're also available on iTunes and Stitcher. So, until next week, this is Bill Templeman. Now, usually I close the program with some theme music. Quite often, uh, play some, some more Leonard Cohen. Uh, however, this time, a uh, bit of a change. I'd like to play a spoken word poem created by a very fine uh, Ottawa area poet, Ken Victor. So what follows is uh, Ken's reading of his latest work called Masculinity. Masculinity. As if we can be certified a man by some vague plan competing interests devised. Follow this, do that, beat your chest, stare at her breasts, be the best, take more, not less, and you've arrived. You're ready to step up to bat, strut around like you're the fattest cat, act like the world's your doormat, and step on those other men whose first instinct you've been told is to fight and win. Masculinity but what if it's a broken code that's grown old, and those who keep to it have been sold a bill of goods, a list of shoulds that don't serve the human heart, and all you've done is preserve a way of being that's been seeing men into their graves who were far too young to depart. Masculinity and here's the invitation. Change the station. Celebrate a different start where masculinity charts a different direction. And here's the real insurrection. And it's not about guns and fists or a list of how to be part of a tribe that hides its feelings of hurt and loss. I'm talking about the way of the heart and starting down that road, not arguing about whose dog's the boss, but boys and men who've chosen to begin the work of naming their pain of claiming the stain their mistakes created, who see they are not fated to inflict pain over and over again, but see a way forward toward a masculinity that shines its warm light on a world that's had enough fright through the long night of our anger, and now believes a different man has come, one whose heart isn't numb, who doesn't need to prove he's better than that stranger, who knows being better isn't about being the latest trendsetter of revenge, but it hinges on being kinder, of finding the time to listen to our crimes of neglect, how easy it's been to forget those who've been stymied by forces they weren't free to reject. And now you can choose to lose your act and become who you are, a shining star of doing right by those you've wronged, the song of making amends when you took the wrong bend in the road, and you can thank those who showed you a better path, and now at last you're ready to begin. Masculinity Boys and men who know the simple fact that when you drop the act and want to be blessed, brothers, then begin with blessing others and take the advice Otis Redding sang without an ounce of shame. If you want to change the game and be blessed, 
then try a little tenderness. Try a little tenderness. Let's try a little tenderness. 